0: Father, take this stammering tongue. Sanctify it for your use. I pray that you would give us ears to hear. Lord, that you might teach us how to pray. That you might give us greater clarity, even today, in all that you called us to. That we might orient our lives in a way that would bring you glory and praise. This is our heart's desire, in Jesus' name, amen. Philippians chapter one. We have been in this book now for a few weeks and we are considering Paul's prayer in the opening chapter. For our purposes this morning, we'll read from verses nine through 11. As Paul begins to articulate his petition on behalf of the Philippian church, and this I pray That your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve of the things, or approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In this brief petition, Paul demonstrates really five distinct priorities for the, for the Christian life. Paul is praying for the maturity of the Philippian church. And we've been talking about how we can look at Paul's prayers and learn how to pray ourselves, and beyond that, in seeing the things that he prays for, we learn the very things that we ought to be aiming at in life and asking the Lord to do in us as well. So as he prays for the maturity of the Philippians, last week we looked at that first priority, the first of five. And that was the priority of a growing love. He wanted them to be characterized by a love that was guided along in real knowledge and all discernment. Look at it there in verse nine. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more. They had a love. It was a love that was given to them by God. And Paul prays that it might abound, that it might burgeon, and that it would abound in real knowledge and all discernment. So the foundation for any mature church, the way you evaluate a mature church, the way you evaluate a a good church, is by the the abundance of biblical love. That love that we took time to define last week. That's the foundation of our maturity is, is this love, or the evidence of our maturity is this love. And we looked at four characteristics, if you remember, and I can review briefly. We talked about the fact that Paul prayed for God's love. This wasn't a love that the Philippians were to churn up themselves. That's why Paul prays for it. And he asks for a, uh, this, this love from God because God is love. That's his very character. And he is the one by his Holy Spirit who sheds his love abroad in the hearts of his people. So we have been supernaturally taught, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, to love one another. He said, I don't need to teach you about love for the brethren. That is something you already understand because you're in Christ and you have been taught how to love. The ability to love and understanding at some level of that love is innate within the Christian because God has placed it there. He's bundled it, if you will, with your salvation. So it's God's love and beyond that he prays for a growing love. He wants it to be lavish and prolific, plentiful, a love that overflows. But it wasn't enough that it just be a growing love, that they were a loving people. It was also to be a guided love. And we found that in the words real knowledge and all discernment. It wasn't just this love that was sort of reactive and impulsive, no. He is praying that, that their love will overflow in knowledge of the love of God and that it will be full of biblical discernment. You could think of it this way, it's a prayer for an insightful love, a love that knows how to engage. You remember that Paul said in First Corinthians 13 that without love, knowledge merely puffs up It makes arrogant. And so uh, the opposite is true as well. There's something stunted about a love that isn't lived out in knowledge. Without knowledge, love is simply sentimental. It's something that's nebulous and flimsy and whimsical and oftentimes is misdirected in the human life. I know many of you are In-N-Out Burger fans, and if you want to think about it this way, Paul is praying for a double-double. He's praying that your love will abound still more and more, there's the meat. That's what he wants, a double patty of love. He wants it to be sufficiently full of protein and that, that love would then be accompanied by one slice of knowledge and one slice of discernment. It's a lousy illustration, but it came to me. My better illustration was last week that there is a river of love that is overflowing its banks. And it's, it's supplying rich nutrients and water to the, to the valley that is the Philippian church so that they can grow and produce fruit. But even that overflowing river is not Wild. It's overflowing, but it is still directed by the banks of knowledge and discernment. It's guided in such a way that it proves to to slow that river down, if you will, and, 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 and direct it so that it is profitable and that it infiltrates throughout the whole of the church. So he's after a guided love. God's love, a growing love, a guided love, an intelligent love a love that is directed toward edification of the church, building up the church, building up the body of Christ. And we concluded by saying that it is a giving love, and we drew that out of really two things. One, the meaning of the word agape, which is this distinct love that the Bible really put on the map. The word agape existed before Koine Greek, but it wasn't it wasn't really that, that, that love that drew in the most focus outside of Scripture, where in Scripture it is the best and the biggest and the brightest of loves. Paul is saying, look, I don't, I don't want love that is this unbridled passion, this unrestrained emotion. I don't, I'm not talking about that sort of rickety, flimsy kind of love that you can fall into and fall out of it. What does Paul say about agape in 1 Corinthians 13? That love never what? Never fails. It is concrete. It is, it is strong. And that is because it is bound up in a determination, an unwavering commitment to deny myself for the good of other people. That's why that love never fails because self doesn't enter in. Self is a non-issue. Self is willing to be sacrificed so that you might benefit. It is a for you kind of love. There's no self-protection in it. This kind of love is bent on giving and not getting. It is determined to serve, not be served. This kind of love is a Conscious choice to do what is good for another despite the personal cost. No matter my personal feelings at the moment, I am willing to engage for your good no matter the cost. Now, I said this last week, but I want to emphasize it again. All right, just so that we're clear. Agape love is a love of the will, it is a love of choice, it is a love of volition. It is a conscious decision to sacrifice self and to act on someone else's benefit and and the most obvious illustration of that is what? It's the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't get a better definition of this kind of love than that. Jesus Note this because, and I think it's important to say in our culture because there is so much Jesus is our boyfriend sort of teaching and singing out there that says that Jesus was in heaven and he looked down and he saw people that were so attractive, so alluring, he looked at them and he was mesmerized by the glory of their beauty and therefore they were worth him emptying himself, pouring himself out coming incarnate and then dying a sacrificial death in our place. I mean, who wouldn't die for me? (laughs) Folks, that's backwards. Utterly backwards. Jesus Christ is beautiful. Jesus Christ is glorious. Jesus Christ is alluring and worthy of worship. We were sinful, sick and sore as the song says. And the scriptures go to great lengths to make it clear that Jesus did not come for us because we were such a catch. Jesus came for us motivated by a deep, compassionate, merciful love. He came to those who were ungodly he came to those who were helpless. He came to those who were sinners and those who were his enemies. He came to heal the what? The sick. And to give sight to the who? The blind. He came to give, give legs to those who were lame. Do you see that that's a description of us? We were not healthy, whole, and handsome. We were helpless and humbled and broken, blind, and lame, and ultimately unrighteous. We were thirsting for a righteousness that we could not supply for ourselves, and Christ came that he might give us that righteousness. You see, he denied himself in our best interest so that the foundation of his love is not emotional attraction, but it is a volitional commitment. It's a determination of the will. Now, that said, that said, mature love is not without emotion. You understand that? Now you wonder why is Dave Going into this, well, last week I was a little hard on that heart-shaped Valentine's love and none of you signed up for the Valentine's uh, couple's dinner. And so uh, there is a sign-up in the lobby and we really do want you to sign up. I, I didn't mean to demean it to such an extent as to say that romantic love isn't wonderful. What I said was the the funda- fundamental, foundational part of love that, 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 that is being spoken of here is something that is not rooted and grounded in emotion or in romance, but in volition and choice. You see, mature love is not without heart. Did Jesus feel a love for us? Did he feel a love for the rich young ruler who walked away? He did. Did he have a heart of compassion? There's no question. How wide is the mercy of our Lord? You see, mercy is something that is felt, isn't it? It's something that's a gut level deal that goes out to care for those who are pitiable or pitiful perhaps. Jesus knew what it was to have deep sorrow. Jesus knew what it was to weep. You remember the words of those who saw him weeping at Lazarus' death. And, and, and what did they say? Behold, how great, how much he loved him. You see, and our love must be reflective of Christ's. 1 Peter 1 Listen to the language. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your soul for a sincere love, an unhypocritical love of the brethren, he says, fervently love one another from the heart. Fervent, that's a heart word. That's passion. From the heart, he says. Romans 12, 10 and 11. Let love be without hypocrisy. Don't, don't play act at love. Don't fake it. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Brotherly love. Devoted love. You see, if you love your brother in Christ as Christ loves, there will be heart affection. Love should not be merely duty. A right love comes with devotion. Which stops me in my tracks at times. Because I don't love as I should. You can do the thing without doing the thing, right? Philippians 2.1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if there's any affection and compassion, do you hear the language that Paul is talking about? He says, he says look, reflect on the church. Think about it. You could take it this way. <laughs> Since there is certainly encouragement in Christ and there certainly is the consolation of love and just as there is this rich fellowship of the Spirit and there is this mutual affection and compassion that it exists in your midst. How did Paul know it existed in their midst? Because they had the love of Christ in their hearts. Beloved, Listen, love without some level of heart engagement is a stunted love. It's come short. In fact, in Philippians in verse chapter one and verse seven, listen again to the language of Paul. I say this to you by way of reminder, for it's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, you're partakers of grace with me, for God is witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So last week I gave you a definition that I liked most, and I said, I stole it. Love, quote, is a genuine heart affection for our siblings in Christ that expresses itself in concrete, acts of life-giving service you see it's a both and not an either or so there's definitely a heart desire in genuine love love's engine runs if you will on on gospel understanding not on emotional impulse in fact, Paul prays that way in Ephesians 3, 17 to 19. He prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. He goes all geometric on us and he's saying, look, God's love is huge and I want you to grasp it. I want you to know it because as you know and understand his love, that changes everything. In fact, that love, he says, surpasses knowledge. If you want to understand love, look to the Lord Jesus Christ who gave and seek to live a life of humble self-sacrifice in the footsteps of your Savior. Put your feet in his feet. That's what Paul is after. That's the foundational priority, a growing understanding of the love of God for you in Christ, and then that love goes out in our midst and beyond our midst. Now, what's the result of this insightful love? Well, this is our second priority. Here it is. It's the priority of godly wisdom, and we pick that up in verse 10. Note the first two words. He says, so that. This is a purpose statement. I want your your love to abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that. You may approve of the things that are excellent. You may approve of the things that are excellent. There's this progression going on. That's what so that means. There's a progression. The first priority is love, and that leads to the next, which is Christian discernment or godly wisdom. You see, when a person or a church is overflowing with the love of God, there will be a corresponding commitment to all that is right and good and holy and pure and excellent. This word, when Paul says, so that you may approve, is dokimazo. You've heard that before. Remember, it was used for the testing of metals. And, and they would melt everything down and you would begin to, to see whether this, this, this gold was pure, it had the idea of approving something to make sure that it was genuine. You've seen somebody in a movie perhaps take an old coin and they would bite on it. They were testing it to see if in fact it was what it claimed to be. So it is to test something with the goal of approval or, or to prove it or demonstrate it. It's used in Romans 12 too. Listen, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind Remember, we're talking about something here that has to do with a a wise love, an intelligent love. Here we're seeking now to approve of the things that are excellent. Your mind is engaged. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove, there's the word, what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. He's talking roughly about the same thing. This This is a love that is heady and mindful, it's a love that that informs us so that we can understand the things that are right and good and acceptable. It's really the ability to sift through a bunch of different priorities in life, to choose wisely, to approve of the things that are valuable and good, the things he says that are excellent. That's a different word. And that word excellent has the idea of carrying through or to differ, to distinguish, to differentiate, to separate one element in a comparison from another and to to carry that all the way through to where you make the best choice. It's the ability to distinguish between choices. Like Mary, remember Mary and Martha? What did Jesus say about Mary who chose to sit at the Lord's feet? She has chosen the what? The better part. Martha serving is good, but listening is better. Knowing me is better. That's what he's talking about here. It has the idea of being able to, to choose, to prove out, to determine that which is excellent and most valuable. In other words, Philippians, I want you to lead a life of love, but one that is thoughtful and careful. I want you to develop, if you will, cultivate a keen spiritual eye to understand in life the things that are superior, the things that are vital, the things that are eternal. You can waste a lot of your life chasing all kinds of of other things down, can't you? When you think about it, life is perpetually bringing you things all kinds of challenges and choices that you have to navigate from birth to the grave most of you parents are seeking to instill your children with biblical wisdom so that they will choose the things that are excellent and they'll reject the things that are dangerous or the things that are fruitless you know when you think about it most people in the world simply live intuitively have you noticed that They, th- they, if they're thinking, <laughs> they're simply going through life kind of taking things as they think about them and therefore there's no solid footing, there's no clarity, there's no compass and they're just sort of blown along by the winds of culture and they, they bump into this and they bump into that and they're into this for a while and that for a while. Folks, that's the way to, li- to waste your life. Some of you even looking back at your past can remember days when you were younger and you were just given to this thing for a while and that thing for a while and ultimately they mattered to you so much at the time. And God in his sanctifying grace does what? Leads us to the things that matter. Leads us to the things that are solid. Leads us to the things that are substantial. My aunt and uncle had these two wiener dogs by the name of Peanut and Pretzel. And I don't remember which one of them, but one of them they had to put down. Because Peanut, I think it was, would would chase its tail perpetually it would not stop except to eat and sleep when it woke up in the morning where's my tail and it would just go round and round and round and the world lives like that (laughs) the fruitlessness of that pursuit made sense to me even at the age of eight right that's dumb paul doesn't want you to chase your tail in this life He wants you to be able to prove and to discern, to distinguish what is excellent, what is worthy, what is valuable. You see, an excellent life is predicated on excellent choices. Think about Jesus. For what does it profit a man? What? To forfeit his Soul, he can gain everything, but then he forfeits his soul. What's he trying to say? He's trying to, to dissuade us from a life that pursues the things of this world because the end of those things is destruction. Paul's saying the same thing. No wonder, because it comes from the same God. You see, an experiential knowledge of the love of God in Christ through the Holy Spirit gives us depth of insight into life and it enables you to live with a discerning mind so that you choose wisely according to what the scriptures teach and you apply that teaching in such a way that ultimately you live wisely, skillfully, profitably in life. This is what Paul is getting at. That they would have... A knowledge of God's love and that guided by knowledge and discernment they would make the best possible choices ultimately that they would be the best possible people. There's a third priority and that is the priority of righteous character. The priority of righteous character, look again at verse 10. He says, so that you may approve of the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless. In order to be sincere and blameless, he's talking about your character. This isn't something just of the head, it moves out into the life, and of course it begins with your heart, it begins with your thinking, it begins there at the Mission Control Center, but then it goes out and it informs the life, and this is, this is wonderful stuff, graphic, graphic language Paul uses here. He says he wants them to be something, and that is sincere and blameless. This word sincere, the etymology of this word is somewhat uncertain, but there are kind of two primary camps. Some think the word comes from the world of metallurgy where impurities were removed from precious metal and, and, and it would become pure. It's not the same word as dokimazo that we saw earlier, but the idea is you want to have a life that is unalloyed, unmixed. It's a pure life. In other words, it relates to moral purity. You're not one who mingles Christ or seeks to with the world, which Jesus said is an an impossibility, you must serve one master or the other. You're not one who is a life that is hanging on to the world in one hand and seeking to hang on to the cross with the other. You're not straddling some fence. You're not contaminated by the world and its lust. You're, You're unalloyed. Others think the word, and this is intriguing as well, carries the idea of holding something up to the sunlight in order to test it or to judge it. It's holding something up to a bright light. In Latin, this word sincere is sinisere. It means without wax. And it's, it's used to describe fine pottery as the potter would make his... Clay pieces, and he would put those in the kiln. Oftentimes, they would they would crack or have some imperfection, and so they would take this, this wax. Then they would they would work it in this pearly wax into that crack, so that it would be covered up, and they could sell it. They were crooked. <laughs> they could sell it as though it were a, a pure piece of, of pottery. It was it was wholesome. The integrity of the pot, though, was not true. And one way that you could determine whether the potter had used wax was to hold that piece up and look at it in the sunlight, and that wax would inevitably show through the sunlight. And so the idea here is is, Paul is envisioning a life of integrity. It's a life without wax, not a life without cracks. We all have cracks. Let's just be honest about them. And the fact that Jesus answers those questions, right? This is somebody seeking to live a life that is deceptive, it's hypocritical. And Paul says, look, no facade, no fake, no hypocrisy, no claiming to be what you are not. No covering up. Nothing hidden, nothing false. Yours should be a life that could be held up to the bright sunlight and we, we would see that, that as we scrutinize it that your life is full of integrity. Now either way you take the word, whether it refers to moral purity or a life of integrity, those two concepts are, are not that far apart. Essentially, it's the same meaning. It is a life that is righteous, one that is whole, one that can stand up under close scrutiny and judgment. Now that's the word sincere. Paul also used the word blameless. And this word is interesting because it's not normally how we think about it. The word blameless literally means not to offend. It's a life that gives no offense. And in some ways you can see how how these two train cars come together and link, right? This is a life that's blameless so that others don't stumble over you. We're to live a life that causes no one to trip up over us. The gospel is offensive, but we're not to be offensive. That makes sense? We must never fear the offense of the gospel, but as Ryle said, we should not give no needless offense. He again is speaking of a life that's consistent and true just just think about all the COVID stuff that we've been through and 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 the politicians who have been exposed because they do not keep their own mandates what does that do in your heart well folks we should expect that in the world but we should not expect that in the church we should not have that in our own lives It's to our disgrace where that exists. I wonder how many children have rejected the faith on account of of parents who have given, given the offense by their demanding and hypocritical standards, which they did not keep themselves. Those laws that are for thee but not for me. I tell you, I think kids, if they can smell anything, they can smell hypocrisy. You are are shooting yourself in the foot if you're trying to parent your children by standards that you yourself do not seek to abide by. And when you fail those standards that you do not face and confess before them. I remember Charles Barkley saying at some point when he had behaved badly on the basketball court, I am not a role model. Paul said this, imitate me as I imitate Christ. In the book of Hebrews chapter 13 and verse seven, consider the example of those men who taught you and considering their example, imitate their conduct. Beloved, listen, don't don't ever take up that mentality of you're not a role model. You should be a role model. We are called to live as believers in a fishbowl in this world, and our lives ought to be open to examination and to scrutiny, and there should be no cause for anyone looking from the outside in to, to, to stumble over our lives because we walk with integrity. Because we're not phony. And again, I'm not saying you never err, that you never sin, but you deal with that sin. Biblically and appropriately in light of the gospel. You confess it and you forsake it and you're honest about it. So many people are so laissez-faire about the things they say and the things they do and chalk it up to, well, you know, sinners will be sinners. Don't have that attitude. You are to be perfect as your father is what perfect I can't be perfect well if you've trusted Christ you are perfect right that's that's your station in life you have been set apart and you are free of sin and there's a sense in which you're as perfect as you'll ever be because your position and your standing in Christ is one that is perfection the practice of your life just doesn't measure up to that yet Friends, be honest about it where you're you're weak and struggling and seek to see those things shored up. We should not have to pull the curtains on our lives so that people can't see in the windows. How many have testified to Christ only to betray that by a compromised life? Now, How long do we maintain this life of truth and integrity, this life that is sincere and blameless? Notice what he says until the day of Christ. Now, when is that? That that is a phrase referring to the return of Christ for the believer. That phrase, the day of Christ, is distinguished from another phrase which is used in Scripture, which is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a day when Christ comes in judgment of the unbeliever. The day of Christ is the day that the Lord comes to take us to himself and to reward us. You see, Paul's looking forward and he's looking out and beyond the immediate in a sense to, to, to only consider the immediate as it, as it will inform the future. He's looking at the end of the sanctification process to the day of reward. I don't know if this strikes terror in your heart or not, but you know biblically, yes, that you personally, without your mother or father, young person, without your Aunt Mildred, without your pastor, without your teddy bear, you are gonna stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. Someday. Whether you're in Christ or out of Christ, if you don't know Christ, that will be a terrible day, an awful day of wrath and judgment. You will hear words that will, in fact, terrorize you. Depart from me, accursed one, unto everlasting fire. You do not want to be part of that day, but you do want to be part of the day of Christ. Because that is the day when we will be drawn to stand before christ and each one of us personally will give an account for the lives that we lived on earth and in the body let's flip back to the left let's go to 2 corinthians chapter 5. i want to show you a couple of passages Second Corinthians five and verse 10. Well, we'd look up at verse nine. I like this, Paul says, therefore we have as our ambition, what's your driving goal in life? Paul says we have this as our ambition, whether at home or absent, meaning in the body or not. He says to be pleasing to him, that is to Christ, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Note this, that's all, that, that has a broad lens, but now he, he narrows it down to a portrait. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us, may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done. Now listen. Beloved, when we stand before Christ, let's get this clear in our heads. We will not be answering for the sins we've committed. We will not be answering for the sins. That judgment is not about your sin. The judgment of your sin has already taken place, hasn't it? Jesus was struck for your sin every last one of them jesus bore our sins in his body jesus was made sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of god in him those sins have already been paid for your sins my sins are removed as far as east is from west you are as white if you are in christ as snow they have been paid for in full. And the Lord is not going to bring those up in front of you on that day. There's no reason to talk about them. They've been dealt with. Christ shed his blood to atone for those sins. And God's not going to take them into account, and he certainly will not chastise us yet again for those sins. That would be double jeopardy, wouldn't it? Where, where the, a person is prosecuted twice for the same offense. We don't even allow that on earth, let alone in heaven. Jesus was prosecuted, he was judged, and he paid that price for you, for those of you who are in Christ. And there's an unfortunate translation, I think, of this word here at the end. Notice what he says. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That word bad is the word foulos. It is a word that, that can mean bad, but it, it more often carries the idea, we, we, we get the word foul from it. It, it. it carries the idea of worthlessness, uselessness. He's not talking here about poneros or kakos, the other two words that are predominantly used for speaking of moral evil or wickedness or iniquity, he's using this word phalos to carry the idea of those things that are, that are worthless. On, on, on that day, good things, those good things that have eternal value, you will in fact receive a reward for, a recompense for, and those things that are not good, those things that are worthless... Those things that are earthly or temporal or profitless will simply be burned up. Flip back a little further to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where this same day is spoken of. Bless you. Chapter three and verse 11. Paul says, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ. All right, Christ is the foundation and now you're gonna build a life on him. And he says, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, Precious stones. Now, what's common in those things? If you were to expose them to fire, they do not go away, they do not disappear. These things remain. And then he says, wood, hay, and straw. And again, those things, if put through fire, will certainly be consumed. And Paul says, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the, fire, <clears throat> and the fire itself will test, note this, the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. And if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Now note this, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. What's he saying? Again, this is that day when you personally will stand before Christ to give an account for your life. And when your life is put through the fire, if you will, of assessing fire, that, that fire that determines what was good and what was right and what was eternal, what was profitable. And it separates it from all those things that were not. You see, it's it's not good and evil that's being spoken of here but but better profitable and unprofitable or valuable or worthless that's the idea and you think about it there's all kinds of things that we do every day that have next to no eternal value some of you today will watch a football game I swore I wasn't going to mention it but anyway you will you'll watch a football game that's fine but there'll be no heavenly reward for those seven hours or however long that game takes. It's just a thing of earth. It's just a thing of earth. Somebody mentioned the other day that I, I like my green front lawn. I like to keep it nice and mullet. That's fine. But it'll burn, Right? Except as maybe I do that so that I can demonstrate love to my neighbors out of love for Christ, in which case then it becomes something that's valuable. You see, your life is full of things that are just temporal, are just earthly. Those things, those deeds, those things will just pass away. This day is about reward for the things that remain. And so many people, when they look towards this judgment day or this day of assessment before Christ, they're terrified of it. They're fearful of it. And there's a sense in which I guess you could look at it that way, but you shouldn't be terrified of it. It should just motivate you to live so that you are, you are committing more and more and more of your life to, to things that are eternal, things that will last, things that are profitable. You can spend your money on you. It's got temporary benefit. Or you can spend your money, what, on the kingdom of heaven and be rewarded for it, not just here, but in eternal life. Store up treasure. Things done for the kingdom of God, things done from a motive to serve Christ, things done that are sacrificial, In love for others, the myriads of things you do, from from changing pampers to preaching, all of it can be done to the glory of God. Yes? Let all that you do, whether you eat or drink, be mindful to serve Christ. The gold, silver, and precious stone will endure. And that's what Paul is praying for these people, it's what he would pray for us. Revelation 22, 12, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Beloved, that should be a day you're anticipating. That should be a day that you don't want to shrink back in shame. You want to stride forward in gladness because his reward is in his hand, and he wants to give to you according to what you have done, and it should motivate you for greater devotion, greater service. And frankly, brothers and sisters, I think, I think most of us will be surprised. Do you remember the sheep and the goats? And do you remember that he, he says to the goats who are on his left, "Look, I was naked, you didn't clothe me. I was in prison. you didn't visit me. You didn't feed me. Depart from me." And then he, and, and you remember, they, they say to him, "What? When?" When were you naked? When when were you hungry and we didn't feed you? And then he says to the sheep on his right, he says, you know, I was naked, you clothed me. I was hungry, you fed me. I was in prison, you visited me. And what's the response of the sheep? When? (laughs) When were you in need and we met those needs? And Jesus said, if you do it to the least of these, you do it to the least of these, my brethren, you do this to the church, you've done it unto who? to me see this is encouraging and I think brothers and sisters we will go there and be surprised at the amount of fruit that the Lord has borne out of your life and you'll be shocked at all God has done and you will you'll just want to throw it back at him and say Lord (laughs) I had no idea and I am utterly unworthy What a day of rejoicing that will be. Beloved, let me just ask you, are you seeking consciously to store up treasure in heaven? Are you living your life for the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you giving your life in humble service to him? Are you seeking to abound in love? Are you seeking to encourage those around you and to bear their burdens, to pray for them? The Lord sees it all. Maybe some of you are familiar with the great British missionary C.T. Studd. I know the Lord has said, you shall not covet, but man, do I wish I had that name. I, I, You know, that is just good, right? As an athlete growing up, Stud on the back of your uniform, you just can't beat it. C.T. Studd was one of Britain's greatest cricket players. I couldn't help but think of well, there'll be people in here who won't like this, but Tom Brady, here's a guy who, get this, gave away every bit of 29,000 pounds, and when I did the math yesterday, that amounted to nearly $360 million of inherited money, get this, so that he could go on the mission field and trust God. He went to China to serve alongside of Hudson Taylor and it was his conviction that he needed to divest himself of everything so that he could trust God in the midst of that. And he wrote a a poem, it's familiar maybe to many of you, entitled, Just One Life. I want to give you just three stanzas. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon its fleeting hours be done. Then, in that day, my Lord to meet and to stand before his judgment seat. Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn. And from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone. Bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, Thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I'll know, I'll say, 'twas worth it all. Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last.' I hesitate to use that example because most of us will serve Christ in much smaller spheres. Most of us will not walk away from being the MVP of some professional league, and most of us will not abandon $360 million so that we can depend on Christ. But I do ask you this, brother and sister, with Judgment Day honesty. Are you living for the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you storing up treasure in heaven? Are you letting go of the things that are temporal that you might cling to the things and seek the things that are eternal? Is that what matters most to you? This is Paul. I'm praying for you, Philippians, that your love would abound so that you might make the wisest of choices and maintain the highest of character. in light of the the day of the Lord's return for us so that when he comes, Christ might be filled with praise and approbation and reward and say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. You see, this should be our aim in life and this should fill the content of our prayers that we would live a life that is unmingled and unmixed with the world, a life that could be exposed to scrutiny, a life that is full of integrity, a life that would give no one else cause to blaspheme God and that we would be true, through, and through so that we might know the joy of Christ's blessing and honor when he comes. And we could just say amen and wrap it up right here as far as I'm concerned, but there's yet one more verse. Where do you go from here? Are you telling me this, is, this reward of Christ is not the mountain peak of it all? No. Look at verse 11. This brings us to our fourth priority in Paul's prayer, and that is the priority of a fruitful life. Verse 11, the priority of a fruitful life Look at he says, having been filled. Again, these are all connected. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Christ Jesus. Make this distinction in your mind. He's not referring here to the, the fruit which is righteousness, but the fruit which comes from righteousness. You can think of it this way, imputed righteousness, the righteousness that Christ has credited to your account is the soil in which this, this fruitful tree grows. He uses a word here for fruit, karpos. It, it refers typically to the result or the profit, most often the outcome of an action. And so Paul is looking at them standing before Christ, and he says, I want you to look like a, a fruit tree that's just bent with, with branches that are just laden with unpicked fruit for him to harvest. He uses a verb here for having been filled, which is perfect passive. It's something, in other words, that has been accomplished in you and through you in the past, with results that endure moving forward. Again, he's looking to the day of Christ and he's saying what I want to see in you there is the fruit which God has produced in you in the past knowing that your labor is not in vain but in fact will be reaped in the end, won't it? That's what Corinthians tells us. Man, this is so important to get a hold of this fruit, brothers and sisters, is not about you straining and striving as simply to try and churn out something that is, is modeled after the Ten Commandments. This is, this is fruit that is being produced from a good tree, a tree that's been made good by the Lord Jesus Christ through faith in him and the indwelling spirit so that that tree now is, is producing out of that righteous life fruit for righteousness' sake. For we are his workmanship, aren't we? Created in Christ Jesus, why? why did he make you? That you might, what? Produce good works which he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. That's mysterious. Are you telling me that if I sit on my, on my duff and just watch TV that God is gonna produce fruit? No, I'm telling you that if you're a Christian, you will not sit on your duff. But you will engage in the call of Christ and labor in such a way that the fruit is guaranteed. Man, that's glory. Man, that's good. So that Christ will be pleased with you, and he will reward you on that day. We read earlier from John 15, and Jesus said you can't do it unless you are vitally attached to me unless you're abiding in me remaining in me you must as a vine be connected as a branch be connected to the vine the rich vine which is Christ in a living way a living relationship with Jesus so that all that is in him might flow to you and then fruit will in fact be produced and all of that my friends is his doing Jesus says in verse 8 of that chapter, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You, You demonstrate that you are vitally related to me when you take on my character and produce my righteous works through your life. Now do you see the progression here? A growing love for God and man leads to making the best possible choices, which then demonstrates the best possible character, which then makes us the best possible people, living the best possible lives, and all of that to the best possible end. And you say, wait a minute, you already talked about the, be- the great end. No. The final and ultimate priority is found at the end of the verse. This is the fifth priority of Paul and that is God's honor God's honor all of this to the glory you see the words there and praise of God the end of all of this is the worship and the honor of God a fruitful life magnifies the fame and the glory and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ and it results in the praise of the God who gave it Beloved, isn't this what you live for? Isn't isn't this what we exist as a church for? Isn't this why you do what you do? You deny yourself what you deny yourself. You seek after what you seek after. Don't we relish in the thought that God ultimately is honored in our lives? (laughs) <laughs> Just to put it in stark relief, again, remember, Paul is writing from prison and he's suffering. And yet, what did he tell Timothy? I'm the Lord's prisoner. Paul understood that even his prison sentence, even the suffering he was going through, was, was for the Lord's sake. You remember not too long ago studying the book of Ephesians in chapter 1 where Paul's talking about the greatness of our salvation and he says it three times in there. To the praise of the glory of his grace. To the praise of the glory of his grace. You're saved to the praise of the glory of his grace. Glory punctuates this epistle as well. Look over at chapter 2 and verse 11. Here's Christ highly exalted and he says every knee is going to bow in those in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. Verse 11, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To the glory of God the Father. Look over at chapter 4 and verse 20. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so it is in Philippians 1 and verse 11 to the glory and praise of God. Brother and sister, this is the chief end of life. This is the bullseye. This is what you are aiming at. This should be the pulse of every Christian's heart. The glory of God. The glory of God. The glory of God. It's why we do everything that we do that should be our driving motivation. And all those spiritual graces and the fruit which adorn our lives reflect the very being of God. And therefore, really, when people look at you, they are looking at a, a manifestation in many ways of God's power, his might, and his very person showing itself through your transformed life so that we want this full crop in our lives so that he might be put on display by the distinctiveness and the excellence of our lives. Just as an architect is, is, is praised for the buildings that she designs or a, a vintner by the quality of his wines, so it is that God is honored by the beauty of his workmanship in the lives of his people. One last passage and we're going to wrap up. Turn over to Titus. Go to the right. Toward the end, you'll find a bunch of T-books. Go to the last T-book. There are five in a row there. First and second Thessalonians, first and second Timothy, Titus. Titus chapter two and verse 11 For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, and by that he means to all kinds of men, different types of men, Ethiopians, Germans, Americans, men, women, Jew, Gentile, all that kind of slave-free. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, now note this, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, And to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age. Isn't that parallel to what Paul's just praying for the Philippians? And then he says, looking for the blessed hope. What's that? Well, he tells us, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Who gave himself for us to redeem from every lawless deed. And to purify, note that, for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. You see, the grace of God in the life produces a likeness of God in the life. So if I were to summarize it, I would put it this way. I, Paul, am praying for your love to continue and to grow to the greatest degree so that you may be the best, make the best possible decisions that you might live wisely, so that you might be the best possible people marked by godly behavior, so that you will live the best possible lives bearing out the very fruit of righteousness, bringing the greatest honor and the greatest glory and the greatest praise to God. Just one life, beloved. Twill soon be passed. Let us give ourselves, heart, soul, mind, and strength to these priorities, both in your prayer lives and in your life, to the glory of our King and to his glory alone. Let's pray as the music team comes forward. Lord, how full and how rich your word is. As a man said earlier today, what economy of words and how much needs to be unpacked. Lord, there's so much here for us, and yet it's clear. We thank you for this prayer of the Apostle Paul who was praying undoubtedly as it is Scripture according to your will, knowing, Lord, that whatever we ask from you According to your will and in your name you will in fact do. And I pray this same prayer, Lord, for this people, for us. That we too might abound still more and more with the love of God. And that it, it might be in real knowledge and all discernment. And Lord, that that then would produce in us a blamelessness of life and ability to choose the things that are best that we might not spend our lives frittering them away, but living fruitful lives, wise lives, lives that honor you and are according to your word as you have laid out a wise path for us. And Lord, in the end, that our lives might be just chock full of ripe, fresh fruit. Lord, that those works as they hang from our branches, might bring you the greatest of glory as the one who can cultivate in the lives of his people his own character. Lord, nothing is more beautiful than you. We worship you, we praise you. I give you thanks for this people. I thank you so much in preparing this message, even thinking about how much of this I see even in our midst now. And <clears throat> Lord, we we look to you and just give you praise for all of it. We know it's from your hand. May you be honored. In Christ's name, amen. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you.